Lord Jesus. First of all, God, I'm just so thankful. <laughs> Coming out of time of remembering you in communion and, and singing uh, some of those songs that are just really special to me. I'm just overwhelmed with gratefulness right now. So thank you that we even get the chance to come and be in your presence this morning. We are unworthy of it. It is simply by your grace that we have been invited in. So thank you, Father. May we come now with hearts ready to listen, with hearts waiting to be obedient to what we hear from you this morning. So would you please speak to us, Father, I pray. Bring this humble message to life in your presence. May you increase and may I decrease this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we uh, started last week looking at the spiritual disciplines, uh, working from a, a book by a guy named Richard Foster called The Celebration of Disciplines. And so we're kind of following a model that he set up uh, in that book. And the way that this is going to go this morning, same way we went last week, same way it will go next week, is I'm just going to kind of give almost a commercial for these disciplines. Just kind of introduce them and talk about them relatively briefly, trying to create some space where after that we can talk together. Now, if you look around, there's not a ton of us in here today. Thank you, freezing rain. So, uh, we can't all just sit back and be quiet. As I'm going through these disciplines we're going to look at today, I'm just going to encourage you, be thinking, have, we, have I tried this before? Maybe what stopped me if I haven't? What is it that is difficult about that discipline? We'll have some time to share that. Or, you know what, I've tried it, and here's something that I have found helpful as I've attempted this discipline. And we... Excuse me, we just want to take some time to learn from each other this morning. Does that make sense, church? Okay, so last week, uh, we started looking at the spiritual disciplines, and Richard Foster breaks them up into three categories, inward, outward, and corporate. Last week, we started looking at the inward disciplines. They were study, meditation, prayer, and fasting. These are kind of the foundation that everything else is built upon. These are the ones that regardless of life circumstance, or there, there's certain disciplines that you put into practice when you're coming against a certain struggle. This is the discipline that's going to help me gain some traction here. These are the ones that have to become a part of every single one of our regular practices. Study, meeting with the Lord in his word. Meditation is that application piece. Lord, what does that look like in my life? How do I apply that? How, how would I have responded to you in that situation what are you calling me to do differently? And it's this kind of like in internalizing of what we hear from the Lord. Prayer and this conversation with him, both talking, but especially listening from him. And then fasting, intentionally telling our appetites no to train ourselves up. Just because I want it doesn't mean I need it. And so I'm going to say no to this thing even a good gift from the Lord because I don't want to overlook the blesser because I'm just so happy for the blessing. And so we started looking through some of these and, and discussing some of them. Today, we're going to move into the outward disciplines. Richard Foster says this just about disciplines as a whole. Our world is hungry for genuinely changed people. Leo Tolstoy observes, everybody thinks of changing humanity and nobody thinks of changing himself. 
Let us be among those who believe that the inner transformation of our lives is a goal worthy of our best effort. We love the thought of the world around us changing. We only have control over one thing, though, and it's us. Let me read that last line again. Let us be among those who believe that the inner transformation of our lives is a goal worthy of our best effort. That's how the world is going to change. When we don't focus on changing it, but we focused on being changed in it. Does that make sense, church? So let's begin to talk about some of the outward disciplines. Uh, as we do, again, I want you to keep these in mind. We talked about this last week. First of all, wait until next week to choose a discipline that you're going to practice. That, that's from last week. It said wait three weeks now, two weeks. Wait until the end of this series to pick a discipline because what we tend to do is we listen through and we start to feel guilty and we go, oh, I got to get better at that one and that one and that one and that one. And then we've got six. And if there's one thing you know about yourself is if you take too big of a swing, you will fail. Really easily, you're going to get overwhelmed and you're going to quit. So wait until the end of this series, wait until after next week, and then just pick one. Correct. So the at the most two that's there is if I've got one that I'm, I'm, I've already been working in and I'm okay, it just needs a little tweak, okay, pick one more. But the point being, small chunks. Take small bites, okay? The only way that we're actually going to make it through any of these and actually grow in these ways is if we just focus on one until it becomes a natural part of our rhythm. And then we can add in another one and another one. It's not a sprint. Even if Jesus comes back next month, he's not gonna go, how come you're not great at all 12 of these? Yeah, I would love more in the next 12 years for you to have added one a year and be able to pull them out when you need them. I've already practiced them. They're already a part of my routine. That would be such a better use of your time and energy than just for the next month trying to kill yourself and then quitting. So do that. And the, the second thing, these disciplines are not intuitive. They need to be modeled. Find someone who's further along in the discipline that you feel called to and ask them to teach you. It's called discipleship. We're all called to it. These are meant to be learned in the context of relationship. Somebody who goes, hey, I don't know if this is gonna work for you, but here's what's worked for me. Let me show you how to start. And then as we begin, we're gonna learn, wow, these couple things I'm gonna take and these other ones, they don't work for me, I'm gonna leave those, but we begin to grow and make it our own. But you're not just gonna learn these by reading a book or hearing me talk on it. We need other people to come and to model these for us and to show us how to begin to walk in it. Does that make sense, church? You're shaking your heads? Wow, that was a loud one. You're shaking your heads, but most of you will not actually reach out and talk to somebody else. It's a humbling thing to say, I need your help, will you teach me? I'm going to challenge you to be boldly humble and to reach out to someone and say, will you just show me the first couple steps even? If we're really gonna grow in this, that has to be how this works. So last week was the inward disciplines, the ones that most people probably won't see you actually doing, but they should see the fruits of. Most people will never see you sitting down and doing your Bible study and reading. Most people won't see you praying those kind of very intimate prayers when it's just you and the Lord. There's obviously a corporate expression, but there's these things that are kind of just inward. No one sees us actually practice, but they should see the fruits of. Now we're moving into the outward ones, the ones that people will actually see us begin to practice. First, we're gonna start 
with the discipline of simplicity. This is a very un-American discipline. The discipline of, in, of simplicity. Another word for simplicity could be focus. Not getting all tangled up in all of the extra stuff, but just having a singular focus of how we live our lives. Because here's the thing, we're all called to live with inward simplicity. Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Jesus just went through this whole teaching, talking to his disciples about going, don't get caught up worrying about what am I gonna eat? What am I gonna wear? Where's this gonna come from? What that, where's that gonna come from? He said, you should have an inward simplicity, this focus, keep first the things of God, his kingdom and his righteousness. And he says, he'll take care of everything else. There's a simplicity to it. Not simplicity meaning it's an easy one to knock out, but simplicity meaning I'm not getting distracted by all of this other stuff. But here's the thing, our inward simplicity and our outward simplicity are tied together. We can't live with inward simplicity while outwardly we're just grabbing everything new and shiny that we can get our hands on. While we're chasing everything the world tells us is important, we can't do that but inwardly keep first the things of God. Does that make sense? So if we're truly going to live with this kind of focus that Jesus calls his people to, then we have to start looking at what am I chasing in my life and how do I begin to simplify that so that I'm not so distracted by all of this other stuff, but I can focus on putting first the things of God. Richard Foster says this, because we lack a divine center, our need for security has led us into an insane attachment to things we really must understand that our lust for affluence in contemporary society is psychotic. It is psychotic because it has completely lost touch with reality. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy. We buy things we do not want to impress people we do not like. It is time we awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick. Until we see how unbalanced our culture has become at this point, we will not be able to deal with the mammon spirit. Let me, mammon is the King James word for wealth. And it's just talking about all of this like earthly attachment that Jesus says you can't serve both God and mammon. You can't serve both God and earthly wealth. You're, you're gonna pick one, you're gonna hate one and love the other. Until we see how unbalanced our cultures become at this point, we will not be able to deal with the mammon spirit within ourselves nor will we desire Christian simplicity. This psychosis permeates even our mythology. The modern hero is the poor boy who purposefully becomes rich rather than the rich boy who voluntarily becomes poor. We still find it hard to imagine that a girl could do either. I love that part because it's sadly true. Covetousness we call ambition, hoarding we call prudence, greed we call industry. We have relabeled chasing after things of the world and tried to put this kind of Christian spin to make it okay. But the truth is, when you look at the life of Jesus, when you look at the life of, of, of the first century disciples and followers of Jesus, there was a simplicity, a giving up of the things of the world to gain the things of heaven. And it's a difficult thing. We, our culture will not let this happen easily. Everywhere you look, every time you turn on the TV, the radio, drive down the road and look at the cars that drive by and something's going to catch your eye and you're going to go, oh, I need that. I wish I had that. I... And we have to learn to fight that. And the best way is by choosing a discipline of simplicity.
Jesus said this, a very familiar verse to most of us. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. At the heart of the discipline of simplicity is asking, where is my treasure truly? And if it's anywhere other than the kingdom of God, how do I begin to loosen my grasp on that? The discipline discipline of simplicity is kind of a mix of fasting and generosity. Saying no to the appetite for more and choosing a simple life focused on what's truly important. Living life open-handed with all that we have. It's viewing life through a lens that says, everything I have, I've been given for kingdom use. It's not wrong to have things, but it sure is wrong to hold on to them and call them mine and to fight for them and to be greedy for them. And here's the thing, they will never satisfy. I'm always gonna need another one, a bigger one, a newer one. We know it, yet we just keep tripping over it again and again. Listen to, again, this focus that Jesus talks about in a parable in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and he reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and he buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he has found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and he bought it. Look at the singular focus, the simplicity of it. That is worth everything else. And so I'm going to give up everything to go get that. The kingdom of heaven is so valuable that I will choose to live open-handed with everything else. I will not get tangled up by this drive and desire that culture is putting on me to chase this and to chase that and to chase that. The kingdom of God is so valuable, I'll sell it all. And I will choose to live simplistically to fight against that cultural urge that's in me. The discipline of simplicity is about keeping the first thing first. It's not just about having less stuff. It's about fighting to keep stuff from crowding in on what's most important. Loosening our grips on the things of this life so that we can focus our thoughts and our attentions on the things of the next. Andy Stanley, a a pastor from the Atlanta area, says this, God is not trying to get your stuff from you. He's trying to keep your stuff from getting you. This is what God knows. The more we have, the more attached to it we are. And so he's not trying to get stuff from us like he's in need. He's trying to keep our stuff from getting us, from binding us and pulling us back from him. So in uh, Richard Foster's chapter uh, on simplicity, he spends half the chapter kind of describing it similar to what we've just done. The second half of the chapter is all about beware of legalism. Because here's the thing that he knows for those who actually attempt simplicity they are going to find some success in certain areas. And and most of us work this way. They create some rules for themselves. I'm only going to have so many articles of clothing. I'm I'm not going to buy a car that's, that's newer than this or whatever it might be, which can be really healthy, helpful things. But the tricky part is, the snare in it is, what most of us will then do is go, and you shouldn't either. They have a car that's too new. They have a house that's too big. They have, and we will begin to judge one another. And this can actually become a point of division. And we have to be so careful with that. As we move toward simplicity, understand that all of us is running our own race. We all have different snares and traps and different things that, that catch our attention and, and try to pull us off the mark. And we can't hold our personal standard 
and put it over everyone else. That is unfair, it is unchristian, and we're, we're warned a number of times in Scripture that it's not for us to do. Who are we to judge another man's servant? So be very careful as you start to lean into simplicity not to give way to judgmentalism, legalism. They do it differently than me, therefore they're wrong, they're in sin. That is not of Christ. So be careful with that one as you lean into the discipline of simplicity. The next discipline that we're going to work with, uh, it's kind of two smashed together almost inseparably, solitude and silence. Foster says this, without silence, there is no solitude. Though silence sometimes involves the absence of speech, it always involves the act of listening. Simply to refrain from talking without a heart listening to God is not silence. So when we talk about silence, we're talking more about a spirit of silence more than just not flapping your jaw. That's a piece of it. But to just be silent is not enough. It's about a posture of getting alone to be with the Lord that says, I need to hear from you. I need for you to order my steps. I need to... It, it goes so hand in hand with like prayer that we've talked about before and meditation. Some of these are, are really intertwined with each other. But the author Jordan Rayner talks about the culture that we live in and he refers to it as the kingdom of noise. How the enemy wins simply by being noisy enough that we live distracted. We're called to have that simple focus, but we live in a world where there's always a phone ringing, there's always a TV on somewhere. Have you ever tried driving in your car without the radio on? It's terrifying, right? There's just so much space. Your own thoughts start coming in, and where did that even come from? And oh, I don't even like myself there, and, and we have to find noise. And this discipline of solitude and silence is about removing yourself from the kingdom of noise so that you can hear from the king of kings. Foster says one reason that we can hardly bear to remain silent is that it makes us feel so helpless. We are so accustomed to relying upon words to manage and control others. If we're silent, who will take control? God will take control but we will never let him take control until we trust him. Silence is intimately related to trust. I've read this, I don't know how many times this week, and I just keep coming back to it, and asking the question, how often do I try to manipulate and work a situation using my words? I'm gonna defend myself. I'm gonna make sure that they understood what I was saying. I'm gonna make sure that I come off in looking like this certain person that I wanna look like, because it's terrifying not to. And words is the way that I do that. What if in some of my interactions with others, I chose just to remain quiet, even if they misunderstood me, even if it makes me look weak or, or the, oh man, they thought I meant this and, and I don't defend myself because I don't need to defend myself. I have a heavenly father who knows me and is my defender. But it feels helpless to not speak up. Even in our relationship with God, even in our prayer times, Man, pay attention to this sometime. When you go in to pray with the Lord, how often are you trying to work the situation? But Lord, but you know that I would never really do that. I know it looked like this to them, but God, you know my heart. And we, and we start positioning and posturing. What if instead we went, hey, Lord, here's what happened today. Hey, Lord, here's what I hope happens today. I mean, whatever it may be, and I'm just gonna leave it there. What do you have to say? And we sit in silence and wait on him. This last line 
Silence is intimately related to trust. Is so true. The, the longer my wife and I walk together through this life, the more we're not scared of awkward silence. We can drive in the car and not talk to each other, and we don't have that like, oh no, fill the space, fill the space. You ever try driving with a stranger in your car? Four seconds of awkward silence, and you're like, look, you gotta walk. This isn't working. Like, I can't do this with you. Because we're always like, what are they thinking? And oh no, and we don't trust. Many of us are the same way with our Lord. We have to learn to trust him, and as we do, we'll learn that it's okay to just be silent and receive from him. Solitude is more than just getting some alone time to take a breath, especially if you have younger children. That is an incredibly good and important thing. I'm not being down on that, but that is not the same as the discipline of solitude and silence. It's about finding a place for reflection, allowing the Lord to search us and to know us. One of my favorite passages, I I quote it all the time, Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I pray that regularly to him. Then you know what I do? I shut up and I let him search my heart and I let him bring out things that are contrary to him and I don't defend myself. I go, okay, Lord, what do we do with it? Lead me in the way everlasting. As long as I cannot sit quietly with him, as long as I feel the need to defend myself, we will never actually deal with those things. I will never be led in the way everlasting. Does that make sense, church? Okay. The next discipline, super fun. You guys ready? These are all fun. Submission. Again, Foster says this, of all the spiritual disciplines, none has been more abused than the discipline of submission. Somehow the human species has an extraordinary knack for taking the best teaching and turning it to the worst ends. Nothing can put people into bondage like religion, and nothing in religion has done more to manipulate and destroy people than a deficient teaching on submission. For Honestly, for thousands of years, the teaching on the church was we're an authority, you're down here, submit to everything we say. You cannot question, you cannot push back, and it's been put in this position of if anyone's an authority over you and you don't just say, thank you, sir, may I have another, you're in opposition to God. And that's not what we find in scripture. That is not what the discipline of submission is about. It's not a blind obedience to anyone that has a form of authority over you. We actually have many biblical examples of people not submitting to authority, but they do it in a very particular way. In the book of Daniel, there's actually a couple different examples of this. Daniel and his friends are taken captive into Babylon. And they're told, you have to go into this certain program. And part of that is you're going to eat all of this meat sacrificed to idols. And Daniel says, that's wrong. We can't do that. And so he doesn't start up a revolt or a rebellion. He doesn't throw the meat at the people or anything weird. He goes to them and he says, I can't in good conscience do this. Can we instead just eat fruit, vegetables, and water? And let's wait a week and see who looks better, me or the people eating what you want. God blesses, and they go, wow, actually, nobody's eating meat. Everybody's eating vegetables and water now. Because of his, his approach to it, again, it wasn't just, they're in charge, so okay, we got to do this thing that's wrong. But he went to them, willing to, to face the consequences, and said, I cannot in good conscience do that. He tried to work something else out with them, and thank the Lord it worked. But then there's the next chapter, with three guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And there is this massive statue built to King Nebuchadnezzar. And they're told anyone that doesn't bow down and worship that statue is going to be burned in the furnace. So everybody bows down, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand there openly. And they come to him and they say, bow down. Don't you know what we're going to do to you? And they said, look, we cannot in good conscience do that. We will worship no God other than our own. Throw us in the fire. Do what you have to do. Our God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we will not give in to you. A couple chapters later, they really hate Daniel. He's, the Lord is blessing and he's doing well. And here's the one thing they know about Daniel. Three times a day, he goes and prays openly in his window so that everyone can see him. And it's these three very specific times. And so they say, let's make it illegal to pray to anyone other than Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar signs off on it and they know noon tomorrow, we got him. They go and they find him doing exactly what he does every day, breaking the law by praying to his God. And when they come to him and they say, we got you, doesn't make excuses, doesn't try. He says, I will pray to no other God but my own. Do what you must. He thrown into the lion's den. We know how that one works. Later in the New Testament, we have Peter and John who are pulled before the Sanhedrin, like the highest authority in Israel. These are the religious leaders. These are the ones who decide what is sin and what isn't. And they pull Peter and John before them and they say, we're sick and tired of hearing about this Jesus guy. If you don't stop speaking in his name, we will kill you just like we killed him. And what's Peter and John's response to them? You tell us, is it right to serve you or to serve God? We're gonna continue to speak in his name. Do what you will. Foster says, were these men in opposition to their own principles of self-denial and submission? No, they simply understood that submission reaches the end of its tether when it becomes destructive. In fact, they illustrated a revolutionary subordination by meekly refusing a destructive command and being willing to suffer the consequences. Submission does not mean blind obedience. We, we all at some point in time may be put into a situation where a boss, a, a spouse, a family member, someone that has authority over us tells us to do something that is destructive. Destructive in relationship against what the scripture teaches. And we're not told just blindly do it. What we're told is to stand the, I love it, meekly refusing. Meek means power under control. To stand boldly and say, I cannot do that and I'll face whatever the consequences are. The discipline of submission, what it's really meant for, is to battle our inward need for control. Every one of us feels like we have to control a situation in some, some way. We all feel like, wait, we're manipulating people in some way. Some of us, it's very overt, and we just speak really loud and get big until everyone cowers and does what we say. Others, it's much quieter and craftier, but we all have this need to control a situation. But through the discipline of submission, through the discipline of going, we'll do what you want, not what I want. We learn to take that need for control and nail it onto the cross. Foster says, I said that every discipline has a corresponding freedom. What freed correspondence, uh, I mistyped that. Um, what, what freedom, there it is, corresponds to submission. It is the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. The obsession to demand that things always go the way 
we want them to go, is one of the greatest bondages in human society today. People will spend weeks, months, even years in a perpetual stew because some little thing did not go as they wish. They will fuss and fume. They will get mad about it. They will act as if their very life hangs on the issue. They may even get an ulcer over it. In the discipline of submission, we're released to drop the matter and to forget it. Frankly, most things in life are not nearly as important as we think they are. Our lives will not come to an end if this or that does not happen. Being freed from the bondage to have to get your way and to say, you know what, I'm going to choose submission in this. This isn't the big deal that something inside of me is telling it is and you have to grab control and overpower people. This isn't worth that. You win. Let's do it your way. There is an incredible freedom that comes in submission. Paul's teaching in Philippians 2, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Uh, another word uh, used in a different translation for rivalry is selfish ambition. But in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only for their own interests, but also for the interests of others. Submission is going, you are more important than me. Let's do it your way. I release you from my control. Let's do it your way. And there is an incredible freedom that comes with it. The discipline of submission is not about trusting the other person, not to mistreat you or in any way to get something wrong, but it's instead about trusting that the Lord's way, the way of mutual submission of placing other people first, is better than your way, which is control. It's not that I trust Kim so much, I'm willing to just say, fine, let's do it your way, because is she going to mess up? Church? She is. She even said it. Is she going to hurt me at some point in time? Does that mean that I now can pick up my, my rights to control? No, because I trust the Lord's way better. He is my defender. And I submit to others, not because they're so good. I submit because that's the way that he's called me to live. And then talking about, there's, there's some hairy situations. This isn't some really easy color by number thing. And Foster says this, some of these, these are extremely complicated questions about what about this situation, or what if it's abusive, or what if it's, what if it's, what if it's. These are extremely complicated questions simply because human relationships are complicated. There are questions that do not yield to simplistic answers. There is no such thing as a law of submission that will cover every situation. It is not an evasion of the issue to say that in defining the limits of submission, we're catapulted into deep dependence on the Holy Spirit. After all, if we had a book of rules to cover every circumstance in life, we would not need dependence. The Spirit is an accurate discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart, both yours and mine. He will be to us a present teacher and prophet, instructing us in what to do in every situation. This discipline of submission can get hairy, and it's not always do this in every situation. But as we walk in dependence on him going, Lord, how do I submit myself in this situation, in this situation, trusting that he will lead us. Let me, something that, to tie into our last discipline, something that submission regularly looks like is to say nothing. In most situations, what does it look like to practice the discipline of submission? Be quiet. Don't correct. Don't come up and go, yeah, but you don't know what you're doing, or oh, you're doing it wrong, or just to remain silent. 
you will find, even today, if you start to practice it, it will be one of the most difficult battles of your life. You will see just how often you need to grab control in a relationship and see that your way is done or things are done your way. But to learn to just be quiet in those times, to celebrate with somebody else instead of going, well, if they would have done it my way, it is an incredibly difficult discipline. The final one that we're going to look at, the discipline of service. Philippians 2, continuing on from Paul's teaching in there that we looked at earlier, says, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The king of all took on slavery for us. Talk about becoming a servant. Look, look at this from John chapter 13. It's put so clearly in and around the, the final supper, uh, the last supper Jesus had with his disciples. Jesus knew that the father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. Jesus knew the time was near, the mission was about finished, and he knew who he was. He had come from God and he was going back to God. And you, you see this kind of kingliness raising up in him. So he got up from supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel that he had tied around him. When he knew that his mission was about complete, that he is recognizing how power was being fulfilled in him, how did he use it? To serve. Understand, like to wash feet when someone came into the house was the job of the lowest servant on the totem pole, and it should have been the first thing that was done. But actually, we know from John's account that on the way to the Last Supper, the disciples were having an argument. Anyone want to guess what they were having an argument about? Who's the greatest? We're in with the king. I'm, I'm closer to him than you are. No, I'm greater. No, I'm greater. So they get to the Last Supper. They actually have already eaten the Last Supper at this point in time, all with dirty feet, because no one would choose to serve their brothers. No one would even choose to serve Jesus because in doing so would be admitting, I'm the lowest, I'm the servant. And so the king takes off his robe, gets a basin of water, and begins to wash their feet. And they knew exactly what it meant because then they come to Peter and Peter goes, no, Lord, never. You will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, unless I wash you, you're unclean and you have no part in me. In which case, Peter, as he does, full reversal, then wash my head, my whole body, like give it all to me. He understood what you're doing right now shouldn't be. You're the king. You shouldn't be serving us. And Jesus goes on to tell them this. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. And that is well said, for I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. Jesus goes, you're right, I am the king. And as king, I chose to use my power and authority to serve you. 
this is how you should be interacting with one another. Do as I have done for you. Foster says, in some ways, we would prefer to hear Jesus' call to deny father and mother houses and land for the sake of the gospel than his word to wash feet. Radical self-denial gives the feel of adventure. If we forsake all we have, we even have the chance of glorious martyrdom. But in service, we must experience the many little deaths of going beyond ourselves. Service banishes us to the mundane, the ordinary, the trivial. Many of us will even will read the Bible and we'll look at the Apostle Paul and we'll go, oh, to stand boldly and to proclaim, knowing that they're going to take your life, I would do that. But would we go and become a tent maker to make sure that we don't take from anyone else because we're here to serve them? And all of the trivial, mundane, little services of life, we go, that's too much. I would do this one big grand act, but to live my life as a servant... It's too much. I asked Kim if I could share a, a quick example. I just have Kim's shoes written down on my, my notes here. Kim and I have been married for almost 20 years. And for the first 15 years of our marriage, she has this wonderful habit of walking into the house and like, like some wonderful fairy just kind of floating out of her shoes. And she leaves them sitting wherever they happen to lie, middle of the floor, middle of the hallway, just as you walk in the door. And for 15 years, I tripped over her shoes every single day. Sometimes it was like she wore eight different pairs and just placed them in strategic places. And for 15 years, we had the regular battle of, babe, could you please just pick up your shoes? Even just, just kick them off to the side. And she's like, yeah, no problem. I'll take care of it. And then tomorrow, there she goes, shoes lying there. And I would trip over them, and we would argue about it again and again and again. And 15 years in, the Lord kind of took me to task on it. He said, how's this working for you? Not well, Lord. She won't learn. It seems like a simple, I have more shoes than she does, and they're always put away. Like, and he said, do you love your wife? Yeah. Then serve her. And here's the actual thought that went through my head. I think I've shared this with you, Kim. But if I serve her in this, if I clean up her shoes for her, how's she ever going to learn? That's messed up if you stop and think about it for even one second. Am I her parent to teach her how to put away her shoes? No. But I had taken this role of I'm above her and I have to teach her a lesson. And the Lord said, clean up her shoes. Well, that's fine, but I'm going to tell her. Nope, you're not. Every day when you walk in and you trip over her shoes, put them away. Would you die for your wife? I'm like, yes, of course I would. Then pick up her shoes. That should be so simple. And don't even tell her what you're doing. This was service, and it felt like death every single time. Because I was like, oh, stupid shoes. Can't believe she... She probably doesn't even know I'm putting them away. She probably thinks I'm doing a great job. And I'm like, oh. Now, it's been five years now that I've been as quietly as possible. I'm not perfect at it. Putting shoes away as a tiny little act of rebellion against myself. I love her, so I will serve her in this meaningless, stupid little way, it's a way of me putting myself on the cross and going, I will make myself less than her and clean up her shoes today and probably tomorrow and maybe even later today. Again, who knows? Foster sets up this kind of dichotomy between what he calls self-righteous service and true service. And I just want to read some of these examples. He says, self-righteous service requires external rewards 
It needs to know that people see and appreciate the effort. It seeks human applause with proper religious modesty, of course. True service rests contented in hiddenness. It does not fear the lights and blare of attention, but it does not seek after them either. Since it is living out of a new center of reference, the divine knot of approval is completely sufficient. Serving because I know that my God sees it, and when he looks and he goes, that's what I would have done. That's enough for me. No one else has to see it. No one else has to know. I don't have to brag on myself. I don't have to make a big deal. My Father in heaven sees it, and that's enough for me, so I'll continue to serve. Self-righteous service is highly concerned about results. It eagerly waits to see if the person served will uh, reciprocate in kind. It becomes bitter when the results fall below expectations. True service is free of the need to calculate results. It delights only in the service. Hear this part. It can serve enemies as freely as friends. Self-righteous service picks and chooses whom to serve. Sometimes the high and powerful are served because that will ensure a certain advantage. Sometimes the low and defenseless are served because that will ensure a humble image. That one stings. True service is indiscriminate in its ministry. It has heard the command of Jesus to be the servant of all. Self-righteous service is affected by moods and whims. It can only serve when there is a feeling to serve. We often call it moved by the spirit. Ill health or inadequate sleep controls the desire to serve. True service ministers simply and faithfully because there is a need. It knows that the feeling to serve can often be a hindrance to true service. The service disciplines the feelings rather than allowing the feelings to control the service. We as followers of Jesus must grow in this discipline of service because our king not only modeled it for us, but called each and every one of us to do likewise. To become, and this is tough, especially in our American culture, and this word is even a trigger, to become slaves to those around us. Willing bond servants. I will serve your needs above even my own because my Lord has served my needs above his own. I have received it from him and I will send it back out in kind. So these are the outward disciplines that Foster calls us to that we see all throughout scripture. Simplicity, solitude and silence, submission and service. So now, time for us to discuss. I don't have a list of questions here for them, but with each of these, as we've talked through it, as, again, maybe you've tried some, and, you, and I would love for you to share, hey, here's what I found most difficult about trying that one. Here's the part that, that I keep tripping over as I try that, or as I've tried this one, here's something I've found that has actually helped me gain a little traction. I've had some success as I've tried that one, and here's why. So let's take some time and just learn from each other. These are not easy and they're not intuitive. We, they need to be modeled, they need to be taught. So let's teach each other. Pick anyone, just kind of say, hey, with, with simplicity, here's what I've found, and then teach us.
the, these are, and I didn't have time to get into much of this, these are all tools used to battle a very specific lure that the enemy is using in our lives. For instance, right now, uh, the Lord has been speaking to me, and I've been very aware about my need to control in ways that I wouldn't have called it control before, but he's now kind of keying in and going, this is control. What tool do I pull out to battle control? Submission. And so for now, that is where my focus is. Am I still reading and praying? Yes, because all of those help me grow in submission because I understand that's the discipline needed to gain traction in this area. And then there will come a time when the Lord goes, hey, we're doing pretty well there. And he's probably gonna point out something else. And I'm gonna go, what discipline is gonna lead me to victory over this snare in my heart? And then I focus on that discipline. And so there's kind of this revolving that happens around them. And so it's not like, man, again, we gotta pick up every one of these and do them perfectly all day, every day for the rest of our lives. That's why we focus on one. What freedom is this gonna give me? What is this gonna help me overcome that is currently holding me back? And so I'm gonna employ this discipline until I gain traction in that area. Does that make sense? Okay, that's a good thought. Thank you, Kim. So what else? What, what have been struggles? What has given you success in any of these? Okay, so she was saying, uh, as far as the discipline of simplicity, something the Lord has, has called her to that's helping her in that is being in the now. Uh, oftentimes, one of the things that I know, and I'll speak of my own experience, I struggle with simplicity because I'm thinking about tomorrow or next year or whatever, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need this, and I need that, and I need this, and I need that. But when I come back and I focus now, I go, do I, do I really need those things right now? No. Don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough troubles of its own, Jesus' words. But worry about today. Be, be, in, be in today with the Lord and you will find it easier to give up some of that. I'm going to need this and I'm going to need that. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah. Sure. Right. Okay, so uh, talking about that uh, silence kind of revolves around trust. And so she's saying in some things, there's kind of that special request that she has that she only takes to the Lord and to no one else, not because it's good to share our requests with brothers and sisters and to invite their prayer. That's a healthy thing. But in some of these to go, Lord, I trust you so much in this. I choose to trust you so much in this that I'm not even gonna tell another soul what I've been praying for because I trust that you knowing about it is enough. That can be a huge thing. Thank you. What else? I mean, like, in today's world, like, service tends to be, like, a big thing we do that's very, like, public. And it's, like, just all of your social media and just you <laughs> going to the service. And like, but it's, like, sometimes it's crappy. Like, if you want to help out at this 
Mm-hmm. Like, fun thing. You can meet me here or whatever, but, like, just, like, service, true service is, like, doing it when no one else will see right. it. And even if, like, a lot of times when you try to, like, serve people, like, the people that are serving you are like, oh, my gosh, how can I repay you? Or, like, thank you so much. Right. And just, like, being able to, like, put it all on God and yeah, she's talking about the craftiness that comes with service to toot your own horn. You will find ways and they will look incredibly Christian and sometimes it'll be like, hey, does anybody want to come help out at the food pantry? I'll be there. You know, and like, and here's the thing, like I've noticed this with myself, do a little test. When, when you're tempted to do that, when you're going, man, should I say something, should I not? Do you get a little thrill out of it? When you tell somebody about something that you're doing or have done, we all have these ways of going, I'm so humble and I'm, but is there a little thrill inside of you? If so, you're standing on that shaky foundation. Let it go. It doesn't need to be said. It should feel like dying to yourself. You will want to tell people so bad, like it, you can't stop yourself, it feels like. Die to that. That is a trap. That is a way of, of puffing yourself up, of putting yourself on display, which is completely against this, this discipline of service. It's a tough road to walk. And again, this is where dependence on the Holy Spirit comes in. Because isn't it good to get other people involved and, and give them opportunity to serve? Yes. But in this particular situation, is it glorifying me or is it glorifying him? Lord, we need discernment in this. Does anyone not know that your radio turns off? We know it, right? It's doable. And it'll be the longest four minutes of your life. But I've found, I've been practicing this this week. And every time I'm like, oh man, but I really want to listen to this. Or like, I've never wanted to uh, hear the radio as much as I do when I know I should turn it off. But when I get to where I'm going, there is so much more rest and peace inside of me than there normally would be. Like, I didn't even notice that there was a kind of low-level anxiety running. But when I actually take the discipline of doing that, I get there and I'm always surprised by the kind of the, the slowness of my soul at that time. And it's a really good thing. Kim's thing about, I don't have a strong opinion on that, is such a good truth. And it, it does then allow you to be able to differentiate, is this a big deal or is it not? Just because I have an opinion doesn't, need, doesn't mean I need to throw it out there. There are certain things where I do have a strong opinion because this is dangerous or, or, or because I'm just really passionate about this. And it doesn't say we never speak up, but learning to differentiate, is this something I need to speak into or not? 
I, we, Kim and I's joke, I don't have opinions at all, I have facts. Like, th that's, it's my natural approach to life. It's, there's horribly sinful. But for me to even get to a point of saying, I don't have a strong opinion on this, I have to do a whole lot of soul searching first and go, is this an opinion? Because I'm already convinced it's right. Everything else is sin. And going, so I have to start so much even further back than she does because I don't even think it's an opinion. It's just, it's wrong to do anything else. And like, what? It's Mexican food. Like, quit it. Who cares? Let them order whatever they want to order. Like, what is wrong with you? Is that a hand? That's where I live. Uh, the second part. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. But all of these, that's exactly right. Take intentionality. That's that discipline word that we hate, but it will not come naturally. These are not intuitive. These are things that we have to set out to move into. We have to be very clear about what we're trying to do because we will not accident our way into being a submissive servant. It does not happen that way. It takes intentionality. If you guys aren't going to talk, she's just going to keep going. So this is more on you than it is on her. Yeah, and that, that's actually a very practical step because most people are afraid to commit to anything, let alone service. And so, hey, so-and-so is moving. Yeah, I'll see if I can make it out there. I mean, what we're leaving ourselves, the out, if I don't feel like it on that day or if something better comes along. Oh, I didn't really promise. I, I said I'd, if I could make it. Instead of just going, there is a need and I will serve whether I like it or not whether I feel like it or not. I, the line that she's talking about, the, and then it goes on to say, the service disciplines the feelings rather than allowing the feeling to control the service. I will come and serve whether I feel like it or not, and I'm going to commit to it. Now there's some accountability in it. That's, it's a very practical step, but it'll feel like I'm, I'm locking the keys to my own cell. You know what I mean? Like, oh, no, I'm going to have to serve every week. 
but it's great. But you should serve with Awana. Uh, thanks, Kim. No. Anything else, Amanda? It counts. It was Peter's pride that caused him to go, no, Lord, never. It seems kind of like this righteous thing, but it was his pride that said, I will not be served. Like, I'm, I don't need this service from you. And Jesus put it to him and goes, you do, or else you're out. And he was like, well, serve more. Yeah, give me the whole thing. But it was his pride that wouldn't allow him to be served. And it almost cost him. Anything else with any of these? Yeah, the, these are not once and done things. Yeah, 100%. I'm with you. I, I have the same thing. And even the phrase, Mike, that you use of I'm, you're going down swinging, really what's at the heart of submission is I have to defend myself. I have to make sure everything turns out this certain way, this whatever. I, I'm going to go down swinging, fighting for this, instead of going, Lord, I trust you. I trust you enough to trust them. David? Mm-hmm. Uh, if my attitudes or actions do not reflect the 
That's good. Thank you. Yeah, that, even just that simple phrase, again, it's been played out at this point, but it's what would Jesus do? You know, leads to that simplicity, that focus. How, how would he respond in this situation? Would, would he go chasing this or go chasing that? It can be a really powerful thing. All right, I'm going to bring uh, this part to a close just because we have someone over with our children and I don't want to torture them any longer than they need to be. So would you just join me in praying um, to close this time and then uh, we'll finish our service with a song. Lord Jesus, again, we've said it, Lord, but we're, we're so aware of it. None of these things happen naturally. None of these things just magically happen because we want them to. It takes work. Uh, it takes hard work. It takes a proper understanding of who you are and who we are. And Lord, we just need your grace. We need for you uh, to lead us to that one discipline that will help us move forward right now. Again, we can get overwhelmed. We can. Would you just speak very clearly, God? Would you show us the thing that is holding us back right now in our relationship with you and with others? And would you show us which tool to pick up to fight against it? Our desire is not to do the disciplines just to be good at the disciplines. Our desire is to grow closer and closer to you, to be transformed into your image, to live and to love as our king lives and loves. And these disciplines are merely a step on the path. So Lord, would you lead us into this? If guilt is playing its way right now, would you just banish it from us? If, uh, if the sense of earning, I have to do that to earn God's favor, uh, is, is rising up in us right now, would you banish that? We receive everything that you give to us, everything that you say about us, even when we don't feel like it's true, we receive it. And may we now pursue you out of that, I pray. So just move in this way, God, on our behalf. Lead us each very clearly to whatever our next step is in our walk with you, to your glory, God. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's the music team to come up, and we'll close with this song.